This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Solutions to the climate crisis are multifaceted and require innovative thinking. It also means the way we've been doing things, particularly with development, need to change. Imagine the vast array of asphalt, concrete, tar shingles, and metals that cover cities. They don't absorb water and they retain heat the opposite of what is desperately needed in many communities. What if we took all that infrastructure and made it green? While I traditionally avoid disagreement with my heroes, Kermit had this one wrong. It's getting easier to be green by the day. Defender Radio was joined by Dr. Anna Zacherson, a green infrastructure researcher and science communicator, to discuss what green roofs and green infrastructure can do for our cities. Before we dive into the interview, I want to give a quick shout-out this week to Nia Seni, Editor-in-Chief of Global Vegan Magazine. You can find an article on wildlife coexistence by yours truly, a profile of this podcast, as well as some amazing recipes, articles on vegan-related issues, and profiles in the latest edition of Global Vegan Magazine. Hit up globalveganmagazine.com to learn more. That's globalveganmagazine.com. I think to start... So talking about green roofs and green infrastructure, what is a green roof? I mean, sort of you get a vision and then I think you immediately have about 18,000 reasons why it can't work. So if you could explain (laughs) sort of from from the top what it is, that would be a great place to start. Yeah, first, a lot of people get super confused with the word green. They think it's just mm-hmm. sort of eco-friendly roof or something like that. And they, they start talk, thinking about maybe white roofs. Uh, I mean, they think they, they hear green roofs and they start thinking white roofs, which is kind of funny in itself. But a green roof is basically a roof uh, with it's an impervious area. So basically no water can go through into the building because if it does go through into a building, you probably have a, yeah, well, you have a problem. Mm-hmm. So you put vegetation on top of an impervious surface. Now we call green roofs can also be anything on an impervious surface that can also be on a, a bridge. If you green a bridge, which basically also an impervious surface, we would also call it, uh, refer to it as a green roof. So it could be a lot of like uh, crossings for wildlife could Mm -hmm. actually technically be seen as green roofs because you need to make sure that the plants survive on this impervious surface, which is basically the the trick of the trade, so to speak, when it comes to green roofs. Yeah, and that was when I I first sort of thought about talking to you about this, because I follow you on social media and I was reading about some of the articles you had done. And my first thought is, well, if I put plants on the roof, isn't it just gonna like collapse inward isn't and again based on my experience with roofs is when water comes in it's a bad thing and it feels like in canada we go to great lengths to keep water and snow off our roofs exactly which is exactly why a green roof is actually good it's actually Mm -hmm. contrary to what people think people often think that there's going to be more leakage with plants and, and substrate on the roof it's actually the other way around because a green roof um it is basically uh, covering up and protecting the waterproofing membrane. So uh, when it comes to bare roof, the waterproofing membrane can get a lot of damages from foot traffic, from, from tools being dropped and hailstorms. 
And now with climate change, we've, we get a lot more hailstorms now, especially here in Germany and Berlin. It's significantly more now than it has been. So you have a lot of damage to the roofs and this leads to leakage. Also, um, the waterproofing membrane gets UV damage. There was one study uh, done by Suprema where they basically had a uh, covered green roof uh, and a, a bare roof. And they waited 24, 22 years and they checked out the membrane and it was basically unchanged under the green wow. roof and it was completely degraded on the bare roof. So uh, basically a green roof leads actually to, to uh, fewer da damages, which is, you also can see with some insurance companies here in Europe that actually gives you uh, better uh, deals if you have a green roof contrary to, to a bare roof. And it's fascinating, too, because it, it then starts talking about stormwater retention, detention and all of this. And uh, for those who, who haven't done a lot of reading on this, stormwater is a massive issue for municipalities because mm -hmm. you get these even just an average storm creates a significant amount of water and it has to go somewhere and can very quickly overwhelm a municipal sewage system or wastewater system, yeah. which then causes all kinds of flooding, which causes all kinds of other issues in drinking water and mm -hmm. things. Yeah, so, and also the fact is that everything is just flushed from the city and flushed into the sewers. And most cities yeah. in the US and also in Europe and in many other places of the world, you have combined sewers, which basically, it is, it's a, it's a, it's a, basically is silly, but we basically collect the rainwater in the same sewers as the toilet uh, water, basically the, the raw sewage. And in order to not have the system, and they're completely underdimensioned for our cities currently. So when even if you have like just a medium storm, the system fills up. And in order for our toilets not to become shit fountains, I'm sorry to use that word, but poo fountains or feces fountains, I'm not sure like, what I should use. I, I, I don't really think bad. shit was the problem with that, that imagery, to be honest with you. <laughs> Just want to be clear what's actually happening here. Uh -huh, in order uh -huh. for that not to happen, we create these uh, feces fountains straight out into our local water bodies instead. So yeah. the wildlife has to deal with it instead. And this basically creates huge environmental issues. And here in Berlin, this is an example that I almost always take the city smells of poo several times a year, especially in summer. And when it smells of poo, it is poo. And it's actually really dreadful when you think of it. I mean, it's also, also the other stuff that lands up in, ends up in our water bodies as well with, you know, leftover medications that, uh, I mean, very, very, like no medications are basically 100% absorbed into our bodies. We often yep. pee out maybe even up to 40, 60% of the medications. And it all ends up in our water bodies, untreated when you have these combined sewer overflows. And it's of course extremely expensive for the municipalities to treat all these huge volumes of water. So uh, the best thing is to basically intersect the water at the highest point possible, the earliest point possible before it can do any erosion or any damage at all. And that's basically the roof. Yeah, and it's fascinating. I recently saw an article, again, here in Hamilton, Ontario, asking people to consider using certain types of landscaping around the base of their homes. Mm -hmm. And it's the same thing, but about 10 feet lower. And it's yeah. saying put rocks or put, uh, uh, you know, deep boxes at the mm -hmm. base of your home. So as that water comes down, it gets slowed and mm -hmm. it gets held back. And it seems, again, very obvious that, well, if we've got roofs, why aren't we catching it there? And again, I think 
there's two then sort of considerations. One is commercial and one is residential, or mm-hmm. I should say large scale and small scale maybe because residential can be large scale. But I think of an Amazon distribution warehouse off the highway, mm-hmm. which has a massive footprint. Mm-hmm. If they were to use a green roof, would that have a sizable impact, not just on stormwater, but on other climate related issues? Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, here we come back a little bit to, to the question of, of loads on the roof. Mm-hmm. So now uh, one of those big uh, warehouses that have been working with uh, projects like that, they basically often can take a little bit of a lower load, uh, lower weight per square meter than, uh, than a, for example, a residential house that is a little bit smaller. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they can still take an extensive green roof, which is maybe 10 centimeters thick or something like that. It's actually not, not a problem. And, and to provide uh, about, for that area, about 50 to 60% of the annual precipitation volume is then retained by the roof, which is then if you have a three, four hectare big roof, is, is a massive amount of water uh, throughout the year. And it also captures a lot of air pollution and, and captures a lot of CO2, of course, but uh, then you have to look at the whole life cycle analysis, which is a little bit more complex depending on what roof you use and so on. Yeah. And if you need any, any strengthening of the structure and so on. Um, and then you have the big effect of the cooling. So for example, where you have inlets of, uh, for uh, air conditioning equipment, they basically take in a lot of cooler air. I mean, everybody has some point walks on the meadow and then suddenly stepped on the, on the stone or out on the asphalt and then start running because it really hurts the feet, yeah. right? And that's, that's the same thing that on, on the green roof, you can have a bare roof where you basically have this super hot uh, stone or asphalt, or you have this uh, uh, cool uh, green roof basically. And you, you can save a ton of money every year by, by installing a green roof and then uh, basically having lower energy requirement for, for the building. And of course, outside where people work, uh, because of the ther- um, um, thermodynamics, the, the cool uh, air will sink from the roof as well. So you get cooling on at grade as well. So it's not just localized on top of the roof and then nobody will, will uh, get, get, get any of the cooling benefits, but the, the air actually moves. So <laughs> you get, you get yeah. the cooling benefit on, on the ground as well. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating. And when we talk about the investment, because I think this, again, this is one of those initial responses of, oh, that sounds great, but what's it going to cost me? And that's, mm. you know, everything from an electric vehicle these days, myself, I've got family that's five hours away and I've got a crummy old Chevy. And mm. I'm thinking, well, you know, buses and electric vehicles and stuff like that, but the cost, and that's what a cost? huge factor in my choice. Mm. And when we talk about energy savings and stuff, it's like, yeah, it would be great to get the high efficiency furnace, <laughs> but yeah. so if we're talking about spending a significant amount of money on, you know, upgrading infrastructure or even just adapting modern or new uh, architecture mm. to incorporate this, is there a clear or available method to look at and say, yes, over time, we will benefit this much and amortize that cost effectively? That really depends on what your problem is that you need the green infrastructure to solve and where you're located, mm-hmm. uh, both if you live in an uh, agricultural area or an urban area. So, uh, um, for uh, location as in country or municipality, there are a lot of tax abatements that, that are that are available for, for green infrastructure. 
And then there's also a lot of initiatives, for example, I think it's in the Switzerland and in Austria, all new uh, buildings uh, with a sort of semi-flat roof at least, uh, that are industrial must have a green roof. So there are actually legal requirements where people cannot even make this question, is it is it something that I can do or not? They have to, mm -hmm. I mean, so, um, but that is for industrial purposes uh, only. Uh, and then uh, if you have, if you are located in an urban area, very, very densely populated urban area where, where land is super expensive, say New York City. So now if you, instead of having those stormwater tanks underneath the building or on the side of the building, imagine now that you can remove those, manage all the stormwater on the roof and increase the biodiversity of the city and cool and capture pollution. So now you also have free space under the building, which you can make, turn into, I don't know, parking spot or gym or I don't know what. And that return of investment can then pay for the green roof. Now, if you're in an agricultural area with loads of land, land is super cheap, then I, I would probably never recommend right now, I would never recommend a detention type green roof because in that situation, a bioretention pond will probably be your best solution. I still think you should go for a green stormwater solution, but uh, so it really depends. And if if you are if you really want a green roof that might not have detention capacity but just retention capacity because you want to reduce your your energy consumption and you have access to grey water for for uh, for um, uh, periodical irrigation, then great that might be a really good good deal. But it really really depends, and I I would really suggest to uh, get in contact with. Uh, the uh, the company that is selling it, or you, you can get in contact with us at Green Roof Diagnostics as well if you if you want to discuss around possible return on investment as well. I, I want to reference an article you wrote for Living Architecture Monitor. Uh, the, <laughs> oh my god, you're scared now. <laughs> yeah, Living Architecture. Oh come on, it's too early for me. Living Architecture Monitor, um, a green roofs for healthy cities publication, and it, it it came up in my my brief research on the subject. Uh, it's a, a fascinating article. I'll link to it in the show notes. But what? I found very interesting was, and this I, one of the reasons I enjoy reading your writing and talking with you, is you take sort of the reality that a lot of people are kind of doing this by gut feeling, or they're they're shooting from the hip, and yeah. saying this seems right and this seems like it'll work, and that is causing issues in terms of the ability to then effectively sell this. And your argument is that there needs to be a lot of rigorous data and a lot of science behind these choices. And as you've just expressed, this isn't something that someone should just go up on their roof and try and do. So I, I guess I've kind of got a two part question is one, what do you think has led to that sort of that just shoot from the hip eyeball of how these might work? And how can we incorporate this into ongoing management. So again, for example, Government of Canada has some documentation on uh, using green infrastructure as a whole to combat certain types of climate crises uh, issues as heat domes and urban heat islands. But it's a far cry from then saying, and here's the company that you can call that'll come out and help you. Yeah. Uh, so how do we, how did we get to this sort of shoot from the hip and how do we then make this accessible? while yeah. still maintaining high standards? That's interesting questions. So now the shoot from the hip uh, thing, um, it's actually not coming from any malice or anything like that at all. I need to really, really state because 
the green roof industry started back in the 70s, I should say, and then took yeah. a little bit more speed in the in the 80s, um, except for the green infrastructure 2000 years ago in the Mediterranean, of course. You know, <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of not a new thing, but but the whole uh, current industry has, has yeah. boomed since the 70s. So now uh, there was a few fire souls, I would say, that really started this up. And as with a- a- anything, uh, they contributed uh, immensely. And it was just amazing what that, that these people actually started this whole thing up. But um, unfortunately, there's been uh, the, the development. Sometimes the science has been lagging a little bit behind, uh, partly because it's a lot of feeling of, okay, we're doing something good. So it's not really this urgent feeling of, okay, we need to develop and question yourself and question yourself and question yourself. And, and uh, I think now over the past years, this has really, really changed. So, uh, and, and everyone's on board, I have a feeling as well. And it's really, really moving forward. There's a lot of cool new innovation coming out. And um, I'm really, uh, I'm really, it's really positive, I think. But that's basically where I think this, uh, this uh, shoot from the hip attitude came from in the beginning. But I would say that it's, it's in the past now. So very, very much a sort of out of necessity, let's try this and see if it works. Look at that, it worked. Let's try the next thing. Yeah, exactly. But then you need to continue with that and not just say, okay, Mm -hmm. it kind of works. So therefore I'm going to continue like this for 20 years. That's not, that's not a a good strategy. (laughs) So, um, but, but as I said, you know, there's some fantastic people in the green industry nowadays. Um, The second question, um, how to implement this. I think there's a lot of things to be learned from, from Austria and Switzerland, um, where they have both a lot of uh, tax abatements, but also have extremely good um, green roof um, association. Grünstadt Grau is the association in Austria. And they, they have a really clear website where you basically almost just click your way through a, a questionnaire so basically you end up with with the sort of, uh, okay, how, how will I finance this or how will I do this and that? And then you have a list, you immediately get lists of companies that you can contact and, and so on. So it's very, very accessible. And, and this is like, they have so many green roofs there now because yeah. of this. Um, but then of course they have politicians that uh, collaborate and you have a strong grassroots uh, initiative. So you have from all directions, people who actually see the benefit and, and the purpose of this. And I think that can happen also in, in the US and Canada. I uh, really, really, really hope so. Yeah, and it, you wrote, I believe it was you that wrote that there is a lot of misunderstanding, or maybe it's uh, Green Roof Diagnostics, one of the websites mm-hmm. uh, that you've consulted with, uh, or mm-hmm. sorry, not websites, one of the companies you've consulted with, made the note of there's a lot of misconception in North America, or specifically the United States, about mm-hmm. green roofs and green infrastructure still. And that's yeah. one of the roadblocks. Also, frankly, with the United States, the tax uh, abatements or tax breaks are going to be a lot harder to get through mm-hmm. in that political environment, I think, than it would be be in Canada or much yeah. of Europe. Yeah. Um, but I, I like the idea of the local level inf- or local level efforts as well. And that's, there was a great example I read, again, it was in this Government of Canada document that I'll link to in the show notes, that referenced Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto, which is City Hall, and that it was a local group of residents who petitioned to have, I think it was a little parquet or something, greening effectively mm-hmm. installed at 
this square and were successful and were able to, as they citizens sort of advocated for this, find those people nice. in government at various levels who were also advocating for it mm -hmm. and then made an almost impossible to deny case to city mm -hmm. council to do this initiative. And it's been successful. So I really think it, it, it's definitely something at a local level people can yeah. start taking on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I think also just to the general move from from gray infrastructure, such as concrete stormwater tanks, which really, I think, should be something that sometimes they're needed, but they should only be used when they sometimes are needed and not as a sort of to go to uh, solution when we have functioning green stormwater infrastructure that basically will create much more resilient and sustainable cities because I mean we are up for a bumpy ride over the coming years and we better prepare otherwise you know we'll say well you might have to spend two euros now or two dollars <laughs> and yeah. but, but then you know if you don't it might cost you a lot lot more down the line. And I don't want to be doom and gloom, but the reality is right now, and, and I, I made reference to this in just talking about this interview uh, on Instagram, at Howie Michael, if you'd like to follow. Um, <laughs> it, uh, in BC, there was 500 deaths approximately associated with a heat dome event. Yeah. Yeah. And that is my understanding of it in wildly simplistic terms, is effectively the changing temperature of the oceans causes the air to move differently and heat to get stuck effectively yeah. yeah uh and one of the things we can do about this though is greening infrastructure because yeah. uh this gray concept that you're referencing i've also been reading a lot about and that's all of our roads are gray looking out my back window all of the shingles on the houses are gray mm. black or dark green or dark mm. blue or dark red absorbing the heat exactly the heat and first, keeping yeah. it keeping that yeah. heat during the day Exactly. And put solar panels on top of that and you heat it up even more. Yep. So now that's another thing that I would like to really also put emphasis on. The combination of green roofs and solar is, is not about solar or green roofs. It's about solar and green roofs because those are basically the green roofs cool the panels, increasing the efficiency of the wow. electric conversion. So uh, there's no need to have some sort of uh, choice of uh, either or. You can absolutely do both and you can create, you can use the solar panels also to create an ROI for the green roof. And you have better working solar panels and you have better environment, you have lower energy requirements for the building. It's, it's a good deal from, in most cases. So that's, that's an important, uh, important thing. I think, too, when we look, you had talked about the insurance rates and stuff in Europe getting discounts for having mm. green roofs. Again, looking at British Columbia as a recent example, because they have been walloped by climate change issues, uh, massive amounts of flooding in the last couple of years, wow. uh, costing billions of dollars in damage mm. to agriculture, natural resources, mm. homes, industry, like communities got shut down uh, as a really weird uh, first world problem. I couldn't get dog food for two weeks because yeah. all of the dog food JJ eats is produced in BC and shipped, mm. but the literal bridges they had to cross had been washed out. So wow. there was just supply chain distribution issues across the country. Mm. And is this the kind of thing that can help in extreme events when we Absolutely. start adding yeah. this kind of, and not just a green roof on the occasional, you know, big building, but little bits and pieces around our towns and our communities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that 
I think that was it uh, Grenoble. I think I think they have like forty percent of their roof surface now covered with green roofs or something like that, or even forty nine. It was something wow. something insane. I can't I can't don't quote me on this exactly, but I know it was it was absolutely over forty, and uh, they managed to do this. And and of course that has a, a massive effect on on the retention capacity, the cooling or cooling of the city. Um, and if you add detention capacity, those are different types of green roofs, I should say, like detention yep. types of green roofs that, that can replace a stormwater tank uh, that is not a standard normal green roof. Um, but there's one one other aspect as well is that all our cities are planned for a normal, healthy person that can walk about like what. Uh, in 10, mi 10 minutes, they can walk a certain distance. So now here in Berlin, we have several places, for example, outside the entrance exit of the hospital, the main hospital, there is a long, long stretch to walk that has no trees, no greening, nothing. It's when it's like 30 or 40 degrees here, it is unbearably hot. And then you go to the bus station where the little old ladies go to, to go home. Uh, and there is no shade, there is nothing, there's no green, and it's so hot. So I'm just thinking that city planners out there, please, please, please consider this much more seriously in your planning, because this is exactly what is killing people. Yeah. Um, I don't want to like uh, tone it down in any other ways, killing people, and particularly people who are the most vulnerable and the most in need. So um, I think it's it's a societally ethical problem. You know, we need to we need to actually uh, take action and do this. Absolutely. And I think we can. And what I'm getting just from this conversation and again, the brief research I've done on this as not as a scientist, not as a municipal planner, but as a guy who likes to ask questions and talk to people. There are so many different types and looking at purple-roof.com, purple roof concept, one of mm. the projects you work on, yeah. there's multiple types that work on different areas and the different types of vegetation you can consider. And there is so much information now. It seems like the only question we have to ask is what's it going to take to make this the rule, right? That yeah. just moving forward. And as you noted, uh, making it a requirement in Ontario we're expecting massive amounts of growth, um, largely through immigration, which is our growth strategy for a growth-based economy. And we need to put people places. And there's a big debate on, do we use this old unwanted farmland? Uh, I know in a community in British Columbia on Vancouver Island, they're looking at putting a strata on a wetland effectively because it's available land that's not being used, despite the fact that the ecological value of that wetland is priceless immense yes yeah exactly yeah yeah uh, in belleville they i went and dealt with an issue involving beaver trapping they built subdivisions on either side of a wetland in a floodplain and have to keep <laughs> going in and killing beavers oh and my god like it's it's it gets kind of silly at a certain point yeah. when you consider that these tools are out there um, so for municipal planners, I mean, the folks that you are asking very directly, and I think a lot of other people in your position, uh, with the various academic backgrounds, professional backgrounds, and folks like me are saying, do it, where can they start? Where can they go and say, all right, we've decided we're going to try and make this a policy. We're going to try and, you know, encourage more use of this technology and learn more about it for ourselves. Are there some good resources out there? Well, um, we have developed quite a few tools uh, that you can you can use to see what type of uh, green roof would be the most optimal for your specific climate. 
So that's uh, this is one resource that, that you can use. We also have a detention modeler where we have the biggest hydrologic data set in the world on green roofs. So, wow. so we have quite a lot of uh, data power on this. So um, uh, on the purple roof site, there, there are these two, uh, two modelers. Um, the detention modeler is still um, behind a, uh, a login, but it's just you can just write to us and then and, and you, you can get a login. Uh, then there is, uh, there's a lot of good information, like for example, Living Architecture Monitor has got a lot of um, nice uh, articles out there as well, and the Purple Roof blog that I, I write for, most of the content there is about <laughs> me. We try to basically, uh, what my main task is to, to read the academic articles and then translate them into a language which is kind of understandable and not the ivory tower uh, lingo that is over complex and, and kind of rubbish at times. So, <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's uh, also some information that you can get. And most municipalities also have um, uh, here in Europe, uh, also English speaking sites. I know in Sweden, there are some really good sites uh, in Kunstakrau, the, the, uh, the Austrian Green Roof Association also has an English uh, translated site as well where you can read a lot on, about these things or you can just reach out to us. Awesome. Yeah, and I'm a big fan of the Google Chrome Translate function personally yeah. <laughs> because it just opens. Honestly, the amount of content I can read now from different perspectives yeah. is incredible because I can click a button and have another language translated roughly to English to mm. the point that I can understand someone's perspective or need, which is just a whole different conversation, but a tool to be used in this situation. <laughs> uh, to wrap up, I, uh, I want to ask one last question, and it's related it, sort of to a photo I'm also going to ask for for the episode arts from the purple roof website there is a what looks like an average city it could be toronto it could be new york and it's a little green space between two condo buildings it looks like there's some benches there's some trees there's some shrubs there's some grass there's some moss it's a full looking little ecosystem does this also benefit biodiversity? Because we somehow haven't actually directly talked about that this yeah. entire time. <laughs> the little small question about biodiversity. Yes, yeah, that's <laughs> a wee little issue. <laughs> yeah, I mean, of course, uh, like any type of greening of the cities is an improvement in biodiversity because you're comparing a black, completely naked, sterile, it's not sterile, but virtually uh, sterile green roof. Uh, bare roof basically with with something that is planted and actually have some some variety of plants on them then of course there are different different uh, levels of biodiversity but and the importance of that i think it should be determined by what you have around you so now if you are surrounded by parks then maybe the up cost of, of installing a very biodiverse green roof that has higher maintenance requirements might not be uh, justified uh, because you might do well with, with an extensive seeding green roof, which is also increasing the biodiversity, it's just not increasing it as much. And if you're surrounded by parkland, maybe that's, that's going to be sufficient mm -hmm. because we all have a certain budget that we need to keep, you know, and we can't, yep. uh, we can't go beyond that. So um, I'm trying to be realistic as well. Then uh, there are in some places of the world, which is like uh, where, where it's rain frequently and everything, then a biodiverse green roof can be very easy and very cheap to install. So I'm not saying that biodiverse green roofs are more expensive per se. That's also not true. Um, but if uh, it, it's very important to get these uh, corridors, we talked a little bit about corridors earlier mm -hmm. as well, to get the corridors into the city to connect the parks uh, and, and connect these and, and green roofs and also green walls. We haven't spoken anything about green walls. 
but yes. there, there are great uh, trellis system and green wall system or for green facades and all kinds of stuff and on the green roofs of course so now we can create um uh, bridges between the parks where where birds can land where uh, seeds can spread and then where yeah where basically you have a connection of nature uh within the city and that's very 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 important so uh to connect the biodiversity to increase the genetic uh, diversity as well. Yeah. And that's something I do know, uh, again, from my experience covering municipal issues as a journalist at, in, in Southern Ontario in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, during a lot of development, uh, developers would be told you have to have a certain amount of, you know, parkland or, or natural land. Mm. So they would take a corner of their space and make it a woodlot. And it is, you know, originally it would be, call it 98% oak trees, 2% uh, spruce, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. it would just sit off in the corner and municipalities would be spending a ton of money trying to maintain them. And ultimately, the issue is they were completely disconnected from ecosystems. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You, you the paved same with the lawns. circle around them. Yeah. The same with lawns. This, uh, I'm, I'm really, um, I, people, people sometimes laugh at me because I get so upset about lawns. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, no, but it's, it's, it's just uh, sometimes lawns are very p pretty and beautiful, but they are biodiversity desert. To, so to, to consider them as some sort of uh, uh, nature in the cities, I think, is to, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not really quite what, what they are. I mean, they, they can be used for retention purposes for, 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 for that, but, but there is a possibility to actually install urban meadows. Uh, and we have that a lot in Berlin over the last years. A lot of this man well manicured, fertilized, irrigated lawns have now turned into beautiful urban meadows, cost a lot less to maintain. Mm -hmm. They look fantastic. And when the rest of the grass is completely brown and dead because it's basically in midsummer and they've mowed it, uh, these urban meadows still look nice. It's full of bees, it's full of insects. And actually, rat population declined, not increased after really? they have in, yes. So, uh, so it's a lot of lot of pests um, actually decrease when you have an urban meadow and not increase. So uh, I think that's that's really important to actually uh, recognize that it's food and wrappers and things like that that attracts pests, mm -hmm. not not meadows. <laughs> meadows give them somewhere to go and natural food sources, and also invites their predators. Yeah, I would so think fox, like it... foxes. For example, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. coyotes, foxes, raccoons, yeah. everybody who eats little mm. mice and rats mm -hmm. uh, will hang out in those areas. It'll also exactly. invite your birds of prey. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's it's sort of restarting or kickstarting the ecosystem in some yeah. ways. Exactly. Uh, and I will touch briefly on the walls, too, because that is maybe a more accessible option for some people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I may not be able to spend a lot of money redoing my roof right now or putting a mm -hmm. proper living roof on it. But I could, you know, again, in southern Ontario, lots of red brick because of all the mm -hmm. clay. Mm -hmm. So along my red brick wall, I could, in theory, put in, you know, four to eight bolts and put up a trellis. Yes. and start growing some natural plant life on it. There's Absolutely. some that's artistic, there's some that's mm -hmm. wild, mm -hmm. um, and they obviously won't have maybe the same impact as a whole green roof in terms of retention, but they can still do a lot, I would think. Yeah, when it comes to retention, probably not as much as a green roof at all. Uh, when it comes to detention, basically zero, because they will yeah. have no detention capacity, no slowing down of the water. Um, but they have very strong like cooling capacity as well because it's directly where you where you walk, 
And there was one study I just read today, actually, that showed that uh, installing these uh, these green walls uh, or green like trellis system between traffic and the uh, and the uh, pedestrians could reduce the the particulate matter, like for example the PM two point five that yeah. we die die from, <laughs> by fifty percent. Wow. And it's not even that expensive. So I mean, if you think of that, you're actually saving life. We're prepared to invest money in life saving, uh, life saving things uh, in other places. But why, why not here? So it's uh, because it literally is saving lives. It could also act as a uh, traffic calming measure. So again, in yeah, Hamilton, absolutely. we've got uh, uh, we've had a disturbing level of pedestrian fa- uh, fatalities this year oh. related to, to uh, vehicles. And I've I've had many conversations mm-hmm. with folks about traffic calming and how to manage all of that and putting in right a center island with green on it, putting mm-hmm. in between the bike lane and the pedestrians or between the bike lane and the traffic lane, a short green trellis, right? Like mm-hmm. there's there's all <laughs> kinds of interesting ways you can incorporate this stuff. And I think yes. that's what's so exciting about it is mm-hmm. we get a picture of a green roof, which is grass on a roof that's gonna collapse and ruin everything. <laughs> but yeah. what it really is, is a highly technical application that has significant economic and ecological benefits and can come in so many diverse ways to have diverse benefits too. Mm, yeah. It's incredible. Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think it's pretty cool too. That's why I work with it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, really cool because I came out of my, my university studies with a rather weird com- combination of, uh, of uh, studies that I had taken mm-hmm. and, and degrees that I had. And then I just realized that you know the the green, the water, the soil, and 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 also the marketing experience I had, it just came together and and green roofs, perfect. Yeah, <laughs> so. can't wait for more. <laughs> to get in touch with Dr. Anna Zacherson and learn more about green infrastructure, visit greenroofdiagnostics.com or follow the links in this week's show notes and at defenderradio.com. I want to thank Anna for her time and expertise and all she's doing to help communities around the world mitigate the impacts of climate change. I also want to thank you for listening. This show and all we do at the Fur Bears is only possible because of you. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears. Thank you for listening. <laughs>